part two of our exploration of the Gulag Archipelago. We see Solzhenitsyn painting a picture of what this cleansing of the garbage from socialist Russia looked like through his eyes. He begins to paint a picture of it like into a sewage system, a massive sewer system where the police folks who ratted each other out, the transportation system, the trains, the tracks, the boats are all like giant sewer pipes that the party used to flush the countryside of all the undesirable flotsam. And at the very end of this infrastructure of sewer lines lied the gulag. The farmers were flushed down the drain, the teachers, construction workers, laborers, professors, mothers, children, people who produced the food that both the party and the citizenry of Russia ate the people who built the infrastructure tended to the sick taught the students built the planes, built the tanks built the trains all washed down the drain So we have descended to chapter two of our story, of our history, and Solzhenitsyn titled this chapter, The History of Our Sewage Disposal System. When people today decry the abuses of the cult, they kept getting hung up on those years which are stuck in our throats, 37 and 38. And memory begins to make it seem as though arrests were never made before or after, but only in those two years. Before it came the wave of 1929 and 1930, the size of a good river ob, which drove a mere 15 million peasants, maybe even more, out into the taiga and the tundra. But peasants are a silent people without a literary voice, nor do they write complaints or memoirs. No interrogator sweated out the night with them, nor did they bother to draw up formal indictments. It was enough to have a decree from the village Soviet. This wave poured forth, sank down into the permafrost, and even our most active minds recall hardly a thing about it. It is as if it had not even scarred the Russian conscience. And yet Stalin, and you and I as well, committed no crime more heinous than this. And after it, there was the wave of 1944 to 1946, the size of a good Yenisei, when they dumped whole nations down the sewer pipes, not to mention millions and millions of others, because of us, had been prisoners of war or carried off to Germany and subsequently repatriated. This was Stalin's method of cauterizing the wounds so that scar tissue would form more quickly. And thus the body politic as a whole would not have to rest up, catch its breath, regain its strength, 
But in this wave too, the people were of the simpler kind, and they wrote no memoirs. So they were pretty much wiped off the face of the earth. They disappeared into the gulag with no record left behind. And everybody seems to, in Solzhenitsyn's opinion, have forgotten about that. But when you add that on top of what came after, it makes it even more heinous. He then begins to detail the different types of people that were exiled it wasn't just the peasants at this point he walks through the fact that in 1918 they started arresting socialist traitors in 1919 they started arresting Russians who were returning from abroad. In May 1920 came the well-known decree of the Central Committee on Subversive Activity in the Rear. We know from experience that every such decree is a call for a new wave of widespread arrest. It is the outward sign of such a wave. Sailors the rebellious Kronstadt sailors, minus those who had been shot, were sent to the islands of the archipelago. Then they started arresting students. And then in 1921, the arrest of members of all non-Bolshevik parties were expanded and systematized. In fact, all Russia's political parties had been buried except the victorious one. Isn't that a common theme with these type of quote-unquote governments. The winner <laughs> rises to the top on the backs of the losers, but it isn't really a fair fight, is it? Men of religion then were targeted. They were an inev inevitable part of every annual catch, quote-unquote, and their silver locks gleamed in every cell and in every prisoner transport en route to the Solovetsky Islands. From the early 20s on, arrests were also made among groups of theosophists, mystics, spiritualists, the so-called Eastern Catholics, followers of Vladimir Solovev, were arrested and destroyed in passing, and of course, ordinary Roman Catholics, Polish Catholic priests, etc., were arrested too as part of the normal course of events. It seems that the Soviet Union wanted to destroy any concept of religion. He dis discounts a story of um, mothers and fathers who made the agreement that if they were arrested, that one of them would denounce their faith and go back and take care of the kids, and the other one would not denounce their faith and subsequently would go to the gulag. Back to the book, and speaking of religious arrestees, 
True, they were supposedly being arrested and tried, not for their actual faith, but for openly declaring their convictions and for bringing up their children in the same spirit. As Tanya Koldkovich wrote, you can pray freely, but just so God alone can hear. She received a 10-year sentence for these verses. We continue on in the religious vein. In those years, particularly in 1927, in purging the big cities for the pure society that was coming into being, where have we heard that before? The pure society that was coming into being. Hmm. They sent prostitutes to the Solovetsky Islands along with the quote-unquote nuns. Those lovers of a sinful earthly life were given three-year sentences under a more lenient article of the code. The conditions in prisoner transports, in transit prisons, and on the Solovetsky Islands were not of a sort to hinder them from playing their, plying their merry trade among the administrators and the convoy guards. And three years later, they would return with laden suitcases to the places they had come from. Religious prisoners, however, were prohibited from ever returning to their children and home areas. As early as the early 20s, waves appeared that were purely national in character. The waves flowed underground through the pipes. They provided sewage disposal for the life flowering on the surface. In 1929, also those historians who had not been sent abroad in time were arrested. And it just goes on and on as, as they expanded their grasp. From 1928 on, it was time to call to a reckoning those late stragglers after the bourgeoisie, the NEP men. The usual practice was to impose on them ever-increasing and finally totally intolerable taxes. If you think the rich got away, listen to this. At a certain point, they could no longer pay. They were immediately arrested for bankruptcy and their property was confiscated. The state needed property and gold. The famous gold fever began at the end of 1929. Seems to be a common theme among <laughs> dictators. Who was arrested in the gold wave? All those who, at one time or another, 15 years before, had had a private business, had been involved in retail trade, had earned wages at a craft, and could have, according to the GPU's deductions, hoarded gold. But it so happened that they often had no gold. They had put their money into real estate or securities, which had melted away or had been taken away in the revolution and nothing remained. They had high hopes, of course, in arresting dental technicians, jewelers, and watch repairmen. All were arrested. All were crammed into GPU cells and numbers, so no one had considered possible up until then. But that was all to the good. They would cough it up all the sooner. Nobody's immune. And so the waves foamed and rolled, but over them all, in 1929 through 1930, billowed and gushed the multi-million wave of dispossessed kulaks. Now, kulak, hopefully I'm saying that correctly, was the term which was used to describe peasants who owned over eight acres of land Wow. 
That's a lot of land in my mind. Most of the people I know own less than an acre and most of that is taken up by their house. It was immeasurably large and it could certainly not have been housed in even the highly developed network of Soviet interrogation prisons, which in any case were packed full by the gold wave. Instead, it bypassed the prisons going directly to the transit prisons and camps onto prisoner transports into the Gulag country. In sheer size, this non-recurring tidal wave, it was an ocean swelled beyond the bounds of anything the penal system of even an immense state can permit itself. There was nothing to be compared with it in all Russian history. It was the forced resettlement of a whole people, an ethnic catastrophe. This wave was also distinct from all those which preceded it because no one fussed about with taking the head of the family first and then working out what to do with the rest of the family. On the contrary, in this wave they burned out whole nests, whole families from the start and they watched jealously to be sure that none of the children, 14, 10, even 6 years old, got away. To the last scrapings, all had to go down the same road to the same common destruction. This was the first such experiment, at least in modern history. It was subsequently repeated by Hitler with the Jews and again by Stalin with nationalities which were disloyal to him or suspect by him. Solzhenitsyn discusses the legal apparatus which was, was used to justify all of this cleansing of the sewage from the flowering countryside. It seemed that they used Article 58 of their code, the Criminal Code of 1926. He says there was no section in Article 58 which was interpreted as broadly and with so ardent a revolutionary conscience as Section 10. Listen to this, how ambiguous this is. Its definition was propaganda or agitation containing an appeal for the overthrow, subverting, or weakening of the Soviet power, and equally the dissemination or preparation or possession of literary materials of similar content. For this section in peacetime, a minimum penalty only was set. Not any less, not too light. No upper limit was set for the maximum penalty. The author details a story which at first read is almost silly and completely unbelievable. I'm going to read this and then I'll give you another example of a situation equally as scary that's happened in the modern era. A district party conference was underway in Moscow province. It was presided over by a new secretary of the district party committee, replacing one recently arrested. At the conclusion of the conference, a tribute to Comrade Stalin was called for. Of course, everyone stood up, just as everyone had leaped to his feet during the conference at every mention of his name. The small hall echoed with stormy applause, rising to an ovation. For three minutes, four minutes, five minutes, the stormy applause rising to an ovation continued. But palms were getting sore and raised arms were already aching, and the older people were panting from exhaustion. 
it was becoming insufferably silly even to those who really adored Stalin. However, who would dare be the first to stop? The secretary of the district party committee could have done it. He was standing on the platform, and it was he who had just called for the ovation. But he was a newcomer. He had taken the place of a man who'd been arrested. He was afraid. After all, NKVD men were standing in the hall applauding and watching to see who quit first. And in that obscure small hall, unknown to the leader, the applause went on. Six, seven, eight minutes. They were done for. Their goose was cooked. They couldn't stop now till they collapsed with heart attacks. At the rear of the hall, which was crowded, they could of course cheat a bit, clap less frequently, less vigorously, not so eagerly. But up there with the Presidium, where everyone could see them? The director of the local paper factory, an independent and strong-minded man, stood with the Presidium. Aware of all the falsity and all the impossibility of the situation, he still kept on applauding. Nine minutes, ten, in anguish, he watched the secretary of the district party committee, but the latter dared not stop. Insanity to the last man, with make-believe enthusiasm on their faces, looking at each other with faint hope. The district leaders were just going to go on and on applauding till they fell where they stood, till they were carried out of the hall on stretchers. And even then, those who were left would not falter. Then, after 11 minutes, the directory of the paper factory assumed a business-like expression and sat down in his seat. And, oh, a miracle took place. Where had the universal, uninhibited, indescribable enthusiasm gone? To a man, everyone else stopped dead and sat down. They had been saved. The squirrel had been smart enough to jump off of his revolving wheel. That, however, was how they discovered who the independent people were, and that was how they went about eliminating them. That same night, the factory director was arrested. They easily pasted 10 years on him on the pretext of something quite different. But after he had signed Form 206, the final document of the interrogation, his interrogator reminded him, don't ever be the first to stop applauding. Now I'll tell you why, as silly as that story seems and sounds silly to me and I'm reading it, it's happened before, it's happened since. There's a documentary that Christopher Hitchens did, it may have been just a talk that Christopher Hitchens did about the evils of dictatorships. And he showed a video of when Saddam, he, I think, I believe it's called the moment Saddam Hussein came to power. And it's well worth the watch. I think it's four minutes long, maybe five minutes long. It's, it's on YouTube. The moment that Saddam Hussein came to power. Saddam Hussein called the leadership of the Ba'ath Party into an, an, an audience, in, together into an audience. A man came out of the crowd, got up on the stage while Saddam sat off to the side looking dictatorly, just, it's, it's scary to see the calm confidence sitting there smoking a cigar, watching everything that's about to happen take place. This man stands up on stage with a piece of paper in his hand and announces that he is guilty of some conspiracy against Saddam and that these were his accomplices. And he begins reading names off of this piece of paper. As each name is read, the police at the back of the auditorium walk down, 
grab the guy by both arms and lead him out of the auditorium. Then the man behind the stage reads another name. And the police come and take him out of the back of the auditorium. Another name. Another name. After about 10 or 15 people, a few people in the audience catch on what's going on and they jump to their feet and throw their arms in the air. Long live Saddam. We love Saddam. Long live Saddam. Clapping and screaming and hollering and praising this man. Meanwhile, the co-conspirators' names continue to be read off. Nearly half of the auditorium is emptied. All the people that are left are screaming, crying, begging, praising, caught in a state of confusion, absolute confusion and panic. Finally, the man gets done. He sits down. The rest of the audience members, and you can see this in the video, the rest of the audience members sit down, visibly, visibly relieved, shaking, sweating, crying. You can see the relief on their faces that it's over with and that they remained. The remaining audience members are then led outside, each given a pistol, and each ordered to kill one of the people who were let out of the auditorium. And Christopher Hitchens says that in this matter, in this manner, Saddam Hussein made the entire remaining Ba'ath Party co-conspirators. It's hard to believe that evil like that exists. Even watching that video and listening to Christopher Hitchens talk about it and knowing for a fact that it took place, it's grainy, it's old, and it's very easy to pretend that this is something that happened in history. Can't happen now. Nobody could do that now. How could you get away with that now? Russia is currently fighting a war with Ukraine. In the Ukraine, North Korea is still held captive underneath a dictator. Evil will never be gone from the world. We've talked about, well, Solzhenitsyn has walked us through the, the sewer system and how millions of people were spirited away from open society into the gulag. He then begins to talk about the quote-unquote due process that took place in the prisons, the, the legal part of it so to speak. I guess in one way it's good that they can't just arrest somebody and throw you in the gulag without convicting you of something. He doesn't really talk about that there's a, a maximum amount of time that they can hold you without a conviction. It seems like that they could hold you as long as they want to until they get a conviction. Alright. It's time to buckle up. Chapter 3 The Interrogation. If the intellectuals in the place of Chekhov, who spent all their time guessing what would happen in 20, 30, or 40 years, had been told that in 40 years, interrogation by torture would be practiced in Russia, that prisoners would have their skulls squeezed within iron rings, 
that a human being would be lowered into an acid bath, that they would be trussed up naked to be bitten by ants and bed bugs, that a ramrod heated over a primus stove would be thrust up their anal canal, the secret brand, that a man's genitals would be slowly crushed beneath the toe of a jackboot, and that, in the luckiest possible circumstances, prisoners would be tortured by being kept from sleeping for a week by thirst and by beaten to a bloody pulp. Not one of Chekhov's plays would have gotten to its end because all the heroes would have gone off to the insane asylum. This happened in the 20th century, folks. He spent some time talking about the, the, the growth, the birth and growth of different interrogation techniques how it was early on fairly unsophisticated the organs as he refers to the the organs of the state were sort of learning their their craft their job they had a quota to get a certain number of people to sign a certain number of admissions of guilt and they had full reign to do whatever they needed to to get those admissions I wonder where, where does this begin? This has been discussed many times with, with Germany, and I can't help but draw a direct parallel between the two. It, the discussion was an interrogator, for example. Was he an interrogator because he liked hurting people? Or was he an interrogator because that was his job? And that's what he was given to do. Those were his orders were to extract confessions. And how did he feel about it? Did he relish his duty? I wonder how many of these early Russian interrogators, when this first began, and they didn't really have a lot of experience with squeezing admissions of guilt out of people who are not guilty of anything at all. I'm sure it started with sticks and boots and beatings and sleep deprivation and food deprivation and things like that. But for them to get creative enough to squeeze people's skulls with iron rings. Oh, and it gets even worse. There's there's a lot more here further in this vein. It turns out that in that terrible year, Andre Yanurevich, one longs to blurt out Jagorevich Vyshinsky, availing himself of the most flexible dielectrics of a sort nowadays not permitted either Soviet citizens or electronic calculators, since to them yes is yes and no is no, pointed out in a report which became famous in certain circles that it is never possible for mortal men to establish absolute truth, but relative truth only. Now think about that. They're using this concept of relativism to frame the responses of prisoners under the ultimate duress. People who have been ripped away from their families, trucked, trained, walked planes across hundreds, maybe thousands of miles, left in the cold, left without food, shoved in a small closet-sized cell with four or five other people, the words coming out of their mouth can never be absolutely true. 
That's a scary thing to consider. He then proceeded to a further step, which jurists of the last 2,000 years have not been willing to take, that the truth established by interrogation and trial could not be absolute, but only, so to speak, relative. Therefore, when we sign a sentence ordering someone to be shot, we can never be absolutely certain, but only approximately, in view of certain hypotheses and in a certain sense that we are punishing a guilty person. Thence arose the most practical conclusion that it was useless to seek absolute evidence, for evidence is always relative, or unchallengeable witnesses, for they can say different things at different times. The proofs of guilt were relative, approximate, and the interrogator could find them, even when there was no evidence and no witness, without leaving his office, basing his conclusions not only on his own intellect, but also on his party sensitivity, his moral forces. In other words, the superiority of someone who has slept well, has been well fed, and has not been beaten up, quote, and on his character, end quote, i.e. his willingness to apply cruelty. In only one respect did Vyshinsky fail to be consistent and retreat from dialectic logic. For some reason, the executioner's bullet, which he allowed, was not relative but absolute. Sounds like, with all this confusing double talk, if you were arrested, you were guilty. And if you weren't arrested, they just haven't found what you were guilty of yet. This is ugly. Relativism is, a, is an an ugly concept and look that paragraph I just read to you is its ultimate end Solzhenitsyn begins to detail the mechanisms the methods that they used to break prisoners to get them to sign their confessions he details quite a few I believe there's 25 of them we'll run through them briefly but he does go into more detail than what I'm going to let us try to list some of the simplest methods which break the will and character of the prisoner without leaving marks on his body. Ooh. Let us begin with psychological methods. These methods have enormous and even annihilating impact on rabbits. He uses that word for prisoners very often. On rabbits who have never been prepared for prison suffering. Isn't easy even for a person who holds strong convictions. First of all, night. Americans are familiar with this one. Those SWAT raids always happen at 4 o'clock in the morning, don't they? Why is it that all of the main work of breaking down human souls went on at night? Why, from their very earliest years, did the organs select night? Because at night, the prisoner torn from sleep, even though he has not yet been tortured by sleeplessness, lacks his normal daytime equanimity and common sense. He is more vulnerable. Persuasion. In a sincere tone is the very simplest method. Why play a cat and mouse, so to speak? After all, having spent some time among others undergoing interrogation, the prisoner has come to see what the situation is. And so the interrogator says to him in a lazily friendly way, Look, you're going to get a prison term, whatever happens. But if you resist, you'll croak right here in prison. You'll lose your health. But if you go to camp, you'll have fresh air and sunlight. So why not sign right now? very logical and those who agree and sign are smart if if the matter concerns only themselves but that's rarely so a struggle is inevitable 
Another variant of persuasion is particularly appropriate to the party member. If there are shortages and even famine in the country, then you, as a Bolshevik, have to make up your mind. Can you admit that the whole party is to blame? Surely not. Or the whole Soviet government? Surely not. No, of course not. The director of the Flax Depot hastened to reply, then be brave and shoulder the blame yourself. And he did. Number three, foul language is not a clever method, but it can have a powerful impact on people who are well brought up, refined, delicate. Number four, psychological contrast was sometimes effective. We use this here in the United States in our uh, police interrogations, as I understand, if television is to be believed. <laughs> Sudden reversals of tone, for example, for a whole or part of the interrogation period, the interrogator would be extremely friendly addressing the prisoner formally by first name and patronymic and promising everything. Suddenly he would brandish a paperweight and shout, Fool you rat, I'll put nine grams of lead in your skull. And he would advance on the accused, clutching hands outstretched as if to grab him by the hair, fingernails like needles. This worked very well, very, this worked very, very well with women prisoners. Number five, preliminary humiliation was another approach. Number six, any method of inducing extreme confusion in the accused might be employed. Number seven, intimidation was very widely used and very varied. It was often accompanied by enticement and by promises, which were, of course, false. Number eight, the lie. We lambs were forbidden to lie, but the interrogator could tell all the lies he felt like. Those articles of the law did not apply to him. We had even lost the yardstick with which to gauge what does he get for lying. He could confront us with as many documents as he chose, bearing the forged signatures of our kinfolks and friends, and it would just be a skillful interrogation technique. Number 10, or 9. Playing on one's affection for those one loved was a game that worked beautifully on the accused as well. It was the most effective of all methods of intimidation. One could break even a totally fearless person through his concern for those he loved. Number 10, sound effects. Number 11, tickling. This is also a diversion. The prisoner's arms and legs are bound or held down, and then the inside of his nose is tickled with a feather. The prisoner writhes. It feels as though someone were drilling into his brain. Number 12, a cigarette is put out on the accused skin. Number 13, Light effects involve the use of an extremely bright electric light in the small white walled cell or quote-unquote box in which the accused is being held, a light which is never extinguished. He details the box that he mentioned there in number 13. Prison begins with the box, in other words, what amounts to a closet or packing case. The human being who has just been taken from freedom, still in a state of inner turmoil, ready to explain, to argue, to struggle, is when he first sets foot in prison, clapped into a box, which sometimes has a lamp and a place where he can sit down, but which sometimes is dark and constructed in such a way that he can only stand up, and even then is squeezed against the door. And he is held there for several hours, or for half a day, or a day. During those hours, he knows absolutely nothing. Will he perhaps be confined there all his life? He has never in his life encountered anything like this, and he cannot guess at the outcome. Those first hours are passing when everything inside him is still ablaze from the unstilled storm in his heart. Some become despondent, and that's the time to subject them to their first interrogation. 
Others become angry, and that, too, is all to the good, for they may insult the interrogator right at the start or make a slip, and it will be all the easier to cook up their case. Number 16. When boxes were in short supply, they used to have another method. Yelena Stretinskaya was forced to remain seated on a stool in the corner for six days in such a way that did she, not, she did not lean against anything, did not sleep, did not fall off, and did not get up from it. Six days. Number 17. Depending on local conditions, a divisional pit can be substituted for the box, as was done in the Gorokhovets army camp during World War II. The prisoner was pushed into such a pit 10 feet in depth, 6.5 feet in diameter, and beneath the open sky, rain or shine, this pit was for several days both his cell and his latrine, and 10.5 ounces of bread and water were lowered to him on a cord. 18. The accused could be compelled to stand on his knees, not in some figurative sense, but literally on his knees, without sitting back on his heels and with his back upright. People could be compelled to kneel in the interrogator's office or the corridor for 12 or even 24 or 48 hours. Number 19, then there's the method of simply compelling a prisoner to stand there. Number 20, during all these tortures which involve standing for 3, 4, and 5 days, they ordinarily deprived a person of water. Number 21, sleeplessness, which they quite failed to appreciate in medieval times. They did not understand how narrow are the limits within which a human being can preserve his personality intact. Sleeplessness, yes, combined with standing, thirst, bright light, terror, and the unknown, what other tortures are needed, befogs the reason, undermines the will, and the human being ceases to be himself, to be his own I. The bed bug infested box has already been mentioned. In the dark closet made of wooden planks, there were hundreds, maybe even thousands of bed bugs which had been allowed to multiply. The guards removed the prisoner's jacket or field shirt, and immediately the hungry bed bugs assaulted him, crawling onto him from the walls or falling off the ceiling. Starvation has already been mentioned in combination with other methods. In Novorisic NKBD, they invented a machine for squeezing fingernails. What about the straight jacket? Number 30, breaking the prisoner's back. Number 31, or bridling. This was a method where the interrogator took a long piece of rough toweling. This was inserted between the prisoner's jaws like a bridle. The ends were then pulled back over his shoulders and tied to his heels. He goes on to talk about something called the kennel in Lubyanka, in the Lubyanka reception area. In the kennel, there was neither ventilation nor a window, and the prisoner's body heat and breathing raised the temperature to 40 or 50, 45 degrees centigrade, 104 to 113 degrees Fahrenheit, and everyone sat there in their undershorts with their winter clothing piled beneath them. Their naked bodies were pressed against one another, and they got a eczema from one another's sweat. They sat like that for weeks at a time. And this was all methods that the, that the Soviets used to extract admissions of guilt from their prisoners and you know what after you signed that document you still had to finish your tenor maybe you just didn't get tortured anymore maybe instead of getting in the morning up in the morning and getting beat 19 times during the day you only had to get up in the morning and walk two or three miles to the railroad under construction and break big rocks into little rocks with a rusty pickaxe all day in the cold but at least you weren't being interrogated. Half of half of the concept or half of the idea going on here is one, I'm sure that there were some people 
that were guilty of something. There were a lot of people in the gulag. They interrogated millions of people. Most of them probably were guilty of nothing other than maybe being the first ones to stop clapping. And so they were being interrogated for days, weeks, months, years on end, however long it took for them to break and sign a confession, whatever confession it was that the organs wanted them to sign. At some point, they had to decide, okay, I give up. I've had enough. I'll sign it. Whatever it is, I'll sign it. I'm not even going to read it. You're right, I did it. And put yourself in that situation. I'm sure it's difficult to do because, well, in the United States, it's almost impossible. This this seems like fantasy. But if you can step away from reality for a minute, maybe step back 80 years and imagine being in a situation, would you break? You've done nothing wrong. You're guilty of nothing, but you've been ripped away from your family. You're being exposed to one or all of these tortures simultaneously or in a linear fashion over a period of time why fight it why not just sign the confession you're going to do 10 years anyway you're going to do 10 years of hard labor in the camp anyway why not just get it over with sign whatever they want you to sign get it behind you But for some reason, if you decide that you're not going to, maybe you decide, okay, they're accusing you of conspiring to assassinate some party leader. Okay, sure, fine. Well, I'm not. I didn't do it, so I'm going to hold fast. I'm going to suffer my way through this torture. Solzhenitsyn responds to that. So what is the answer? How can you stand your ground when you are weak and sensitive to pain? when people you love are still alive, when you are unprepared. What do you need to make you stronger than the interrogator and the whole trap? From the moment you go to prison, you must put your cozy past firmly behind you. At the very threshold, you must say to yourself, my life is over, a little early to be sure, but there's nothing to be done about it. I shall never return to freedom. I am condemned to die, now or a little later. But later on, in truth, it will be even harder, and so the sooner the better. I no longer have any property whatsoever. For me, those I love have died. For them, I have died. From today on, my body is useless and alien to me. Only my spirit and my conscience remain precious and important to me. Confronted by such a prisoner, the interrogator will tremble. Only the man who has renounced everything can win that victory. But how can one turn one's body to stone? 